have you here this morning. We're going to start. Are we recording? Excellent. All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we get started here in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, today we're going to reach out and touch someone. This is the... Uh, this is the... Uh, who had that? That's a commercial model for something. Yeah, phone company or something. Anyway, uh, Paul says, I, pre I reach forward. And we all should be reaching forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Really, though, in verse 13, uh, or verse 12, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And so there's all this reaching and grabbing and laying hold of these activities, uh, Jesus laying hold of us, us reaching forward to lay hold of that same purpose, that same thing for which Christ, see Christ had a reason for grabbing each one of us. And I realize sometimes we <clears throat> don't always see it, but sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder why, why did God save me? I mean, if it was up to me, I wouldn't even save me. What, what is that? And yet he has a purpose for when he reaches. He has a purpose for when he grabs. He has a purpose when he holds secure. And we're to have that same purpose. And if we have a different attitude, that's a problem. And we're going to see by the end of this um, section here that God is the master at the attitude adjustments. When it uh, says there in verse 15, <clears throat> let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. And so that's more of his faithfulness at work in our, in our life. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer, call upon our Father and his faithfulness once again, and then return to our study here this morning, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, calling upon your faithfulness, Father, to uh, minister your word to your children. Uh, we thank you for the living and abiding Word of God that is alive and powerful even when <laughs> even when we're not, uh, we don't feel like we are, Father. Uh, overcome human weaknesses and, and uh, sleeplessness and uh, provide, Father, for your children to be fed. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, dealing with these things, I want to get to some pretty excited expressions here uh, related to the reaching and the claiming. And I think there's some uh, passages in Scripture, more than we realize. In fact, over a dozen that I found and more, I kind of narrowed it down to seven. Uh, and I regret the ones that I've kept out, actually. So maybe I'll put them back in at some later point and, uh, and get to that. But uh, when it comes to reaching forward, when it comes to that forward-facing orientation and that sense of purpose, uh, there's, there's many passages in Scripture that address this. I think it's worthwhile to see those. And they might appear to be disconnected, and honestly, most of them are disconnected. And even with that disconnection, we actually will find the concepts actually overlap. And some of the issues, I think, are quite profound. And uh, uh, you'll let me know what you think uh, <clears throat> when you take a look at it yourself. <clears throat> All right. Again, I don't know what's going to happen here today. So the idea is reaching forward. And I'll just zip through what we've covered already. Not that I've already taken it. And I hope we get this, that lombano that's combined with the teleao and uh, becomes a kata lombano for the rest of the paragraph. I press on 
even if I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of. Okay? And that's what we're dealing with here, this, this grabbing hold of and the purpose for this. That there's a reason. I'm, I'm reaching forward for a reason. It's the same reason he was reaching forward when he grabbed me. And he grabs me and he does not let me go. John 10, the great eternal security passage there. And uh, that we have a purpose. That we have uh, a race that's set before us. We have a purpose in our generation. And when he's done with us in our generation, then that's it. We're done, we die, we get buried, and it's up to the next generation then to carry forth in God's eternal purpose. All right. Now, regarding this rapture-ready perfection, there was one thing that Paul uh, regarded. In fact, it's split in half. Forgetting what lies behind, we dealt with this on Wednesday, the, uh, the forgetfulness. And understand, forgetfulness is not an absolute it's not used without qualifications. It's not used without other passages of Scripture. I think we recognize when it says forgetting what lies behind, that that's not a command to forget everything that happened prior to Sunday, uh, you know, today's date, uh, prior to today. There are things from yesterday and before that you should still remember. That forgetting what lies behind in the context of Philippians chapter 3 centers on those things that you had counted as credits, those things you had counted as as deposits, those things, and even the losses as well, because you're reaching forward to make more of the, uh, of the positive deposits. So that's the context there. Uh, because otherwise, then we're left with a whole conundrum of passages that tell us to remember things, right? We've got remember the former days, remember those who led you, remember, uh, you know, there's lots of times that scripture commands us to remember things. And so now we're stuck in a dilemma if, if we take that forgetting passage as an absolute as an absolute statement, right? Because now, then we have a mutual contradiction and they can't both be true. And that's not how the Bible works. That's not how God works. Everything God says is true. And so as we reconcile the forgetting verses with the remembering verses, I think we do very well uh, with that. So uh, we have the remembering verses that we were looking at on Wednesday, and I would encourage you to, uh, to get those if you were not here. And uh, if we're going to be out of the recording business sometime soon, then... Maybe, uh, maybe it's a good idea to be here more often in, uh, in getting these things. So that's, that's in the Lord's hands too. Now, this reaching forward imperative. Yeah, this is what we've dealt with. Uh, imperative to forget is not absolute and is not in isolation apart from other passages of Scripture, such as these items there. All right, Hebrews 10.32, Hebrews 13.7. These are all the remembering passages. Uh, the pastor at Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen. He had left his first love. He had to return to the first love and the first deeds and, uh, and remember those, uh, those things. All right. <clears throat> this reaching forward imperative is among the greatest hand stretches of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Hand stretches. It's an idiom that's used in the Hebrew. It's an idiom that's used in the Greek to stretch forth your hand. Uh, and this is uh, pretty common, actually. God, when he redeemed Israel, was with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. There's uh, different idioms about a stretched forth hand, a stretched forth arm. The anthropopathisms that are used there are anthropomorphism that are used there. This reaching forward imperative. Because what it does is it puts us in a position of imitating God. It puts us in a position whereby we're doing our own reaching forward in a manner that is imitative, uh, uh, consistent with that is in fact patterned after what the father does what the son does 
and it's uh, and it's a tremendous thing. So the fact that we get to reach forward to the prize, to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that we're reaching forward to that with our outstretched hand, with our uh, not wrapped for out, but with our outstretched hand, and with that sense of uh, of assurity. See, because we know that it's within reach. We know that we could have it at any moment. It could be today when that trumpet sounds. And so we're reaching, we're reaching, we're reaching, and uh, and we may be laying hold of it. And so, like I said, there's more than a dozen. And from the point of simplicity, I tried, I just boiled it down and uh, left it with seven. And uh, I may regret the ones I took out. But first of all, the first one, though, is with Adam and the tree of life. And this one connects so beautifully with, uh, with Philippians 3, the more I thought about it, the more I came to appreciate it. In Genesis 3.22, we have these idioms about stretching forth the hand. And, uh, and, and likely in a, in a verse we don't read as carefully or in a, in a part of the chapter we don't pay as much attention to because you know, all the excitement and the action of the first part of the chapter centers on you know, the serpent and, the, and, and the, the dialogue and the different things there. Or uh, maybe even after the fall, we might focus on the Lord's arrival and the, the questions that are asked there and then the, the promise of the gospel and the promise of the seed of the woman and all these other things. So it's almost like by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're almost um, not uh, paying as much attention maybe as we should. And uh, when we get to this, uh, this issue here, uh, in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them because the fig leaves is not sufficient. Uh, something that you can do to cover you, the, your own nakedness is not sufficient. Just like whatever you can do to make amends for your own sin. God's not going to care about any of that. Uh, it's got to be his provision. And it's going to be uh, the shedding of blood. It's going to be the death of a, of a substitute. And uh, that's what happens here when he skins these animals to, uh, to clothe them. And then we get to verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand. Notice, <clears throat> he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, you've got three different expressions in there. You've got stretching out the hand, you've got taking also, you've got eating, and, and we tend to just, like I say, just rush on through. We don't even think about it. We just read the verse and think, God, you know, says, Behold, the man is like us. He might eat that fruit and live forever. But there's a process that gets him there that begins with stretching forth his hand. And there's an expression there. There's a, there's a um, I think it's a, it's a concept that's found throughout the Bible. It's a concept that relates to authority, that relates to right and authority and power. That when you are stretching out your hand, even before you take hold, when you stretch out your hand, you are affirming that you have the right to stretch out your hand, that you have the right to take hold, that you have the right to take this thing in, into your hand, and once it's in the right hand, then it's in your authority, it's in your power. See? And so these are themes, and we'll see more of them as we look at all these passages, but the idea of stretching forth the hand, making a claim that you are entitled to that, that is your tree. You have your right to take from your tree, to take from that fruit, see? And so this is the, uh, the concept that we find here. And the idea of stretching forth and taking while still a fallen creature, that was unthinkable in God's mind. 
that Adam and Eve are still fallen, that they were clothed, they were covered, the atonement was made, but the sin is not yet removed. Remember, sin doesn't get removed until the Lamb of God removes the sin of the world. And so the idea that Adam and Eve would eat that fruit before the Redeemer accomplishes the work of Calvary is, uh, is just unthinkable in the plan of God. And so they, it's not acceptable, it's not permittable, he's got to drive them out, he's got to post the chair. There's a lot of things that have to happen here because uh, allowing a fallen creature, even if he's forgiven, even if he's clothed in, in, uh, in, a, in a garment of, of atonement, he's still a fallen creature. And to eat of that fruit is unthinkable in God's plan. And so the, uh, the imperative then is to drive him forth. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out. This is Genesis 3, 24. He drove the man out and uh, uh, the east of the Garden of Eden and stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. And uh, a lot of things, of course, that come up here then that we spark, that spark the discussion related to the fact that that's the first time we've ever seen the word cherubim. And uh, where did he come from? Because he's not anywhere in chapter 1. He's not anywhere in chapter 2. He's not anywhere until that final verse there of chapter 3. How did he show up? When, uh, when were the cherubim made? And, uh, and that serpent was already a fallen creature before he started tempting Eve at the beginning of chapter 3. When did that happen? Because there's a whole lot that's not said in Genesis. And so you've got to go beyond Genesis. You've got to go beyond. You've got to go to Job and Psalms. You've got to go to Isaiah. You've got to go to Ezekiel. You've got to find all these other passages and put them together. That way you get a complete Satanology. You get a complete study on the fall of the angels. <clears throat> and if you don't do that, if you insist that every answer can be found in Genesis, then I have to disagree. There are many things not answered in Genesis, and that's the, uh, the aspect there. Of course, I'm not trying to be critical. I like what they do. I'm very positive towards that organization. I've actually met Kenya. However, <coughs> um, I would like someday to start a competing organization. Not competing. Maybe a, uh, not, not competition, but a coordinating organization, perhaps, and calling it Questions in Genesis, you know? And just come alongside and say, look, this will help you out a little bit because you're dealing with some things that remain questions in Genesis. And, um, and if you're going to be oblivious to that, I'm sorry. <clears throat> when you are totally oblivious to angelic conflict information, you're going to have problematic conclusions in, in the material you're putting out there. And, uh, and that's another discussion I've had with, with Ken Ham himself, actually. So um, aspects there. So stretching out the hand, reach forward, to reach forward and take that fruit. Now a day is coming when we will stretch forward and we will eat that fruit. In fact, one of the rewards that's mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 is to eat of that fruit from the tree of life in the, in the new heavens and on the new earth. And so we will stretch out our hand to take that fruit. And I, I can't wait to find out what it tastes like. I'm, I like eating. And, and the idea of, of this fruit that comes, uh, you know, a different fruit each month from the same tree, that's, that's going to be kind of fun to watch. And to stretch out my hand, knowing I have every right to stretch out my hand. I am entitled, because by his grace, he has put me in that position, see? And so that's the, uh, the aspect there. Paul is reaching forward, and uh, Adam was not allowed to. I think that's a, an interesting testimony. All right, the second one, Abraham and the sacrificial knife. 
Abraham and the sacrificial knife. There is an idiom in that passage also. These are the first two in Scripture. Where hands are being stretched. Where somebody is reaching forth. And I find this interesting. So here's Abraham and the sacrificial knife of Genesis 22. <clears throat> I think this is a chapter that can produce a thousand sermons and never run dry. You know how Randy agrees with me. The, uh, the offering of Isaac and, the, and the, the portrayal of God the Father and God the Son, the typology of this chapter. And, the, and really, it's an expression of paterology. It's, a, it's an examination of Abraham in his role as a father, far more than it is of Isaac in his role as a son. But be that as it may. Um, he, uh, Abraham is called to take his uh, one-of-a-kind son, is monogenes in the Septuagint, like Jesus is the monogenes, one of a kind son, and uh, and to offer him, and uh, to offer him there as a burnt offering. This is verse two of Genesis twenty-two. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's also, by the way, the first use of the word love anywhere in Scripture is the love of the Father for His Son and the love of. God the Father for Jesus Christ, as portrayed in the typology of the love of Abraham for Isaac. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. I love that when three days comes into the, comes into the story, that is always significant. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. This is a positive statement of faith on Abraham's part. He says, We're walking up there, and we're walking back. We will worship. We will return to you. And that statement is such a statement of faith, even though he's been told to sacrifice Isaac when he gets there. And so Abraham takes the wood, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. I find that significant also. Jesus carried his own cross, did he not? And here's Isaac carrying his own wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Remember when wrath is poured out on the cross, it's the wrath of the Father that's judging the sin of the world. Jesus is accepting the wrath of the Father, the judgment for the sin of the world. The Father is inflicting it. So Abraham takes the fire and the knife, and the two of them walk on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. This is why he gets the name Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. So the two of them walked on together. And the different, depending on how you translate the Hebrew, depending on how you punctuate the verse, God will provide himself the lamb. And so if you want to put a four in there, I guess that's not bad. He will provide for himself, or God will provide himself the lamb. And it's almost a double entendre, really, in, in, in that aspect. God will provide himself the lamb. And that's what happens when God himself, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and God himself, the lamb, takes away the sin of the world. And so uh, they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar, 
and you wonder which, which you know, which Stanford does he think is going to stop? Well, Hebrews tells us that uh, he doesn't think it's going to stop. That he assumes God is faithful and God has the power to even bring his son back from the dead. And uh, to me, that's an extraordinary amount of faith as well, related to uh, anticipating a potential resurrection. There's never been a resurrection before, but Abraham assumes that God's got the power to do it. And, uh, and so there it is. And so... Uh, but here's the stretching out. Abraham stretched out his hand. And that's the expression. And again, he has authority to do this. He's under divine command to do this. When he stretches out his hand, that's more than just a, it's more than just a, a, a throwaway detail. Okay? I don't think there are those throwaway details. All scriptures, God breathed and profitable. And then some of it is, is aspect of language that we don't necessarily relate to. Like Abraham rose up and departed. You know, like, it almost seems to us like it's uh, silly, you know, like, well, of course he rose up. How is he going to depart if he's still sitting there in his tent? So he rose up and he departed. And yet the Bible again and again uses those terms. And to rise up, what does that mean, to rise up? Is there a significance to that? And then to depart. Well, here, to stretch out your hand and to take. Those are two separate acts. Stretching out his hand and taking the knife to slay his son. So we have authority, we have right, we have purpose. Uh, he fully intends to, uh, to do this. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. That would be the second stretching out. He did the first one. He's told not to do the second one. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, your unique, one-of-a-kind son, from me. And so the angel of the Lord, I believe, is leading all the other angels to watch this, to observe this. Yes, sir? The, uh, Isaac carrying his wood was analogous to Christ carrying the cross. I often think of it in those terms, yes. To what would be Isaac's carrying the sacrificial knife? The Isaac doesn't carry the knife. Abraham carries the knife. Oh, Isaac did not carry the knife. No, Abraham carries the fire and the knife. Correct. And that's analogous to the father is the one that's applying the judgment. The father's one applying the wrath. Correct. And so, and this chapter too, by the way, is the one that Islam perverts. The Quran totally rewrites it. They, uh, they have Ishmael as being the, the son that Abraham loves, the son that Abraham's willing to slay, uh, the demonstration of Abraham's faith in Allah. And they, they totally pervert this story, failing to recognize that the story they're perverting is telling a bigger picture, which is another story that they not only pervert, they deny. In the Quran, they tell you Jesus doesn't die on the cross. They tell you that uh, he only appeared to die on the cross, that God swapped him out with somebody else instead, and that Jesus never died. And Jesus went to heaven without dying. That's what the Quran tells you. And so they, they change this story, they have to change that story, and it's, it's uh, interesting to me how in the Quran, and I've used this in talking to Muslims, uh, how in the Quran and the changes they've made centuries after Christ, when they, when they try to go back and, and re-edit this thing, uh, I think they betray their own their own counterfeit. I think they portray they they betray their own effort here. 
that the willingness to sacrifice the son was anticipation of the father's willingness to sacrifice the son. And whereas here there's a ram in the thicket, which I didn't get to yet, but that's in, in verse 13. Abraham uh, raised his eyes and looked. So he raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket. Well, how'd that thing get there? Wouldn't you have seen that before? You would think. Anyway, I think if the son's eyes were so fixed on the father, he wouldn't have seen that before. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. And so in this case, Jehovah Jireh provides that there's a substitute for Isaac. Isaac does not have to die because the ram was provided in his place. At Mount Calvary, however, on, on, uh, at the cross, there's nobody taking the place of Jesus. Okay? And if there was, you know, clearly, uh, well, you, there can't be. By definition, there can't be. A one-of-a-kind son, there is no reasonable facsimile that can replace the one-of-a-kind son. He either does it or he doesn't. And if he doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. Okay? And so Jesus dies on the cross, and the Father inflicts the wrath. He is separated from fellowship with the Father in the spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, uh, and, and that's why we're saved. That whole issue there is what removes our sin. The fact that the Father can judge it once and for all. And there is eternal judgment on those sins. How powerful is that? And so it's not like the, the Levitical procedure where every single year, here we go again, here comes another Day of Atonement. Here we go again, here comes another, you know. No, it is once and for all that the wrath of God was, uh, was uh, applied to Jesus Christ. And so we have uh, tremendous Tremendous truth there. All right, so just in those first two hand stretches, the very first two hand stretches of the scriptures, I think there's a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of meat, there's a lot of concepts that, that we can appreciate, certainly, and that will also give us, I think, a greater appreciation for Philippians 3 when Paul says, I'm reaching forward. I'm stretching out my hand. I'm forgetting what lies behind, and I'm stretching forth my hand to take hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. See, I think there's far more in that Philippians passage than we would typically give it credit for because of all the background in the Old Testament, the New Testament, everywhere related to stretching forth the hand. Okay? And uh, those first two maybe tell the whole story. The third one really tells it over and over and over again, repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly. Moses and Aaron were some grabby people. Okay? And God told them to. God told them to. This was part of what they did. And this was part of, again, demonstration. So we're demonstrating a lot of things. In the tree of life, we're demonstrating grabbing hold of eternal life. In, in uh, Abraham and the sacrificial night, uh, we're talking about the, the, the need for, for sacrifice. In, uh, in, in uh, Exodus, we're talking about the need for redemption. And as we see again and again and again, and God's representatives are going to be doing this again and again and again. So as we look at these here in Exodus, I think you're going to see these same elements that, uh, that are featured. <clears throat> so... Uh, We've got a burning bush in chapter 3, and despite several objections, and uh, Weasley attempts to get out of it, and Moses has the job. And uh, yet we get into chapter 4, and Moses is still kind of leery. 
Moses says, well, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord does not appear to you. And so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. So he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. <laughs> I would too. All right. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't. But Moses did. Okay. Stretch out your hand and grasp it by his tail. That's even worse. Okay, I've already kind of figured this out. If I have to grab a snake ever, I want to grab it up by its head and I want to squeeze and I want to make sure, because if I'm just grabbing it by the tail, yeah, that's a, that's a whippy bendy thing. He's going to whip around and, and bite me. All right, I put a lot of thought into this. This is, uh, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail, okay? Now, it's, it's, again, what an act of faith, and, and he does. So he stretched out his hand, he caught it, and became a staff in his hand. Cool. Okay. <laughs> that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. That's that threefold name, the, the patriarchs. Uh, Jacob's the one that's renamed Israel. So he's the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, that gets combined together when he's called the God of Israel. That's his covenant name in the Old Testament. The Jewish people are the covenant nation in the Old Testament. We want to be clear on that. And so as he grabs it then, this, by faith, not just this time, but I think again and again and again, this was like, uh, you know, like his business card. This was like his, uh, like when a police officer shows you his badge. This is when a prophet shows his credentials by the sign that he's given to perform. And so he throws the staff down there, it becomes a snake, and the people get scared, and he says, no, no, watch this, and he grabs it again. Oh, okay. That's it. And then, so the miracle, is not for the gee whiz value of it, it's for the, the testimony that God's power is at work. Listen to what he has to say. Pay attention when his prophet is speaking. And that's the whole point on, on that. It's necessary when your prophets are, are, are speaking to your people and when scripture is being written. That's why we have miracles and signs in the apostolic age because the New Testament was being written. The Greek canon was being added to the Hebrew canon. And uh, that's why the signs and wonder, the modern expression of signs and wonders is so uh, purposeless today. That uh, is not valid today given the fact that we're not writing a, uh, an extra canon of scripture and to be added to the Hebrew and Greek canon of scripture. All right, over to chapter 7. Some more examples of this. Even the pericope heading for chapter 7 starts with, I will stretch out my hand. And these are not, I didn't include some of these, but God himself stretches out his hand repeatedly. And when he redeems his people, when he delivers his people, uh, at second advent in Armageddon, he's going to reach out and stretch out his hand and, and with a mighty hand and then wrath poured out. But we see it here, that, uh, in, like in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And so God's doing his own hand-stretching activity uh, while Aaron and Moses are doing their hand-stretch-out activity. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 19. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, over their pools, 
over their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded. He lifted up the staff and struck the water. In any event, stretching out the hand, now is this necessary for Moses to stretch out his hand, for Aaron to stretch out his hand? But this is the pattern, see? This is the, the imagery, and all of this is instructive. And so by stretching out their hand, they're physically demonstrating what the expression is when God stretches out his hand. Aaron and Moses are portraying that when they stretch out their hands. Okay? And there's a significance to that. Now he could have, you know, picked something else. He could have picked another method. He could have said, you know, tap your nose. He could have said, wiggle your ears or whatever. Right? But instead, he said, stretch out your hand. Because that's the motion that conveys the, uh, the principles of authority, of right, of power. And all of these things are being communicated here. And so they do this. Um, again and again and again. With each of these plays, in chapter 8 and verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Sometimes when you stretch out your hand, there's something already in your hand. A knife, a staff, okay? Sometimes your hand is empty and you're taking hold of something. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and fogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. I think the hand is, is significant. And um, the, the role that humankind has in stewardship of this earth, uh, and some of these guys tell me, well, you know, apes have hands. Okay, I get that. But the human hand and the human mind and the human stewardship that we have over the animals is, uh, is significant. As we image God, as we, as we exercise uh, dominion as per the dominion mandate. All right, Exodus 8, verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, said to Aaron, stretch out your hand and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout the land. So they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And uh, that's it there. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. 22 and 23. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on the, all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of uh, the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And so uh, we have it there. Verse 33, Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands. Now here it's a prayer idiom. Spread out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. Chapter 10, almost done. Chapter 10 and chapter 14. Chapter 10, 12. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up upon the land and eat every plant of the land, even all the hail is left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind. And there it is. Down to verse uh, 21 and 22. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky. There may be darkness over the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. So stretching out the hand. It's very rich in, in uh, usage throughout the, the scriptures. 
And I think that it, that significance broadens our understanding here of Philippians 3 as Paul reaches forward. And then the biggie, parting the Red Sea in chapter 14. And uh, <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. <laughs> Verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. All right. Verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And uh, this, this idiom, this expression, he is literally stretching forth his hand and these waters are parting. So verse, uh, and then they come through and they have time to go through because the angel of the Lord uh, kind of posts himself there on guard duty. Because uh, the Egyptians start to chase them. But the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And, uh, and that. So uh, verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And it was like a wall to them. And they're able to walk through there. Down to verse 26, while the uh, Egyptians are chasing them. Verse, uh, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots, over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So there's Moses and Aaron repeatedly. All right. And... Uh, I don't know. These, these to me are interesting. And I, I think there's, uh, I'm never going to read this idiom again without thinking about it, right? That uh, it's no longer is this, are these terms ever going to be just throwaway expressions that, that, that are just empty or void of any impact? Because uh, I don't think God wasted uh, space when he put this in his scriptures. How about David? David stretched forth his hand. And in fact, when he stretched forth his hand, it was to take hold of a stone. And when he stretched forth his hand, he had actually prepared for this event. First Samuel 17, 49. And all that goes into this, of course, this is the famous David and Goliath chapter. And... Uh, take the whole hour just teaching this one. <clears throat> but, oh, I do want to back up slightly. Because when he stretches forth his hand in verse 19, it's into his bag in order to take from it a stone. Why was there a stone in his bag? There were actually five stones in his bag. Why were there five stones in his bag? What was the preparation that he did in order to step forward and advance uh, and, and face this giant? And uh, I don't know, when I think of, of Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, I start cycling through these examples that we have. And even when we get to Paul then in Philippians 3, all of these are requiring preparation. 
The idea that he's going to reach forward, Paul's going to reach forward to, to what lies ahead. Well, is he preparing for that? Has he put preparation into that? And here's David who's reaching for something. What if he reaches into his bag and his bag's empty? Because he failed to prepare. What if you're reaching for the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God and it's just not there? Because you didn't hide it in your heart. You didn't learn it. You didn't memorize it. See? And so you're reaching for something that is not there. And you go, oh. You're reaching in your pocket. No wallet. Oh. Right? And so here's David and he's reaching into the bag and there's a stone there. In fact, there's five stones there. And uh, my theory is because there's five giants there. Goliath's the only one mentioned in the chapter. The others get theirs in a later chapter. But um, I can't prove that. It's just a thought. So um, I'm backing up slightly. The, um, the armor that Saul gives uh, David is not uh, suitable to him. He's, it's not sized right. He hasn't tested. He hasn't trained in it. Hasn't prepared with it. And um, even when he was uh, arguing to take the job, Saul said, you can't handle this. So I guess I'll pick up there. Uh, in verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. So whatever age David is, probably 10, 10 or 12 years old, whatever age he is, he's just a kid. And, uh, and, and Saul says, Goliath, he's been on the field of battle since he was your age, you know, since he was a kid. And the fact that he's still around means he's pretty good at what he does. He's, he's very experienced. He's very large. And, uh, and you don't stand a chance. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. He says, look, I'm not just a kid, I'm a shepherd. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him. It's part of the job description. You know, he doesn't go running off to dad to take care of this lion. David says, this is my job. And he goes after the lion. He goes after the bear. And rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So here's preparation. Your, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Since he has taunted the armies of the living God. What faith. Okay. This is, this is more faith than grabbing a snake tail. This is something. <laughs> All right. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go. <clears throat> May the Lord be with you. And then Saul has his own ideas about equipment that David's going to need. Right? People always have opinions about what other people need for what they're doing. <laughs> So he clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with his arm. Remember, David's just a little kid. And Saul was head and shoulders above the tallest man of, of, uh, of Israel. Remember when, when he became king, everyone was all impressed and he was tall, dark, and handsome. And, and, and so imagine his armor is, is to scale, size, you know, to, and, and that's not going to fit David. And uh, girded his sword over his armor, tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. I haven't drilled in them. I haven't practiced. I haven't tested them. And, and he knows enough to say this isn't right. So he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put the stones in the shepherd's bag. So they're within reach. He can stretch out his hand and get any one at any time. And all of this is his disciplined preparation. 
And, and, and I love this. There is so much with respect to this. To me, uh, things like this help to shape our training ministry, help to shape our, our philosophy of seminary in uh, recognizing uh, men and where they're coming from and what they're suitable for and uh, what their backgrounds are and what their, what, uh, you know, if you're a shepherd, then uh, the, the shepherd's staff and the, and the sling and the stones, that that's, uh, seems to be the background that God's going to work with and use. Uh, if your background's something else, then I expect there'd be a different uh, aspect to that. Anyway, he takes five smooth stones. I find preparation there. And uh, the sling was in his hand, so he approached the Philistine, and then you get the taunting and the other, the other aspects there. So he reached into his bag. He put his hand, he stretched forth his hand into his bag, it happened, uh, verse 48, it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David stretched forth his hand into his bag and took it from it a stone and slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead, the stone, stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine. Then he takes his own sword, the giant's own sword, and chops his head off with it. All right. And, uh, and aspects there. I remember back in my law enforcement days, that was always the fear that you get incapacitated, you get knocked out, you get knocked to the ground, and someone takes your own gun and, and kills you with your own gun. It's a terrible fear that every police officer deals with on that. All right. So that's the uh, example there. And uh, stretching out the hand. How about the angel of the Lord? Again, David's in the picture. This time he's on the other side of the uh, equation. The angel of the Lord is stretching forth his hand. 2 Samuel 24, 16. <coughs> and um, this is a terrible chapter uh, in which David is listening to satanic whispering and he's growing prideful over the size of his armies and he's ordering... His army is to be numbered, and even Joab thinks this is a bad idea, and that, that should wake, be a wake-up call. Um, nevertheless, David insists, and so he does it, and now, uh, now he's going to come under divine discipline. And so Gad shows up, uh, David's seer, and he's got a rebuke. He's giving David his choice of divine discipline. It says in verse 12, I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your, in your land? Consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And so these are the options. And beyond the fact that it's you know, years versus months versus days, uh, there's, there's other factors to consider as well. The famine and the enemies, the, the military enemies, or the, uh, the pestilence. And it, for David, it all boiled down to, leave me in the hand of God. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So defeat in the, hand, you know, in the face of my enemies, that's off the table, because uh, leave me in the hands of God instead of in the hands of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. 
and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel, and do you understand this? It was David's sin. But it's the Jewish people that are paying that price. The consequences that happen when a husband or a father is, is out of the will of God, it's the wife and the children that are paying that price. They're going to suffer in that cursing by association, in that impact. That's why the accountability is so severe. When a pastor, think about the flock that gets, de that gets devastated when the pastor is doing stupid things. All right? Or, uh, you know, a governor or a president. Any, any divinely sanctioned authority. The consequences then that reach the people that are under that, uh, under that responsibility. So 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. And you know, here's David, and, and you can read this account, the parallel account in, in Chronicles, and he's at the threshing floor of, of Aruna, the Jebusite. Do you believe in coincidences? This is the same spot. The threshing floor of, of, of uh, Aruna, the Jebusite, you know where it was? On top of Mount Moriah. The same spot where Isaac where Abraham stretched out the knife against Isaac, same spot where the temple is going to be built. Solomon will build a temple on this spot. And uh, so the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Relax your hand. And there he was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Oh, there's so much doctrine in this. All right. So that's the angel of the Lord. The uh, couple more. Like I said, there's about I don't know. There's I lost. I stopped counting when I was over twelve, and I'm just guessing there's twenty or thirty of these. The woman of excellence. I thought I could find a domestic one that would be more gentle than swords and battle and killing giants and. Proverbs 31. The woman, she stretches out her hand too. She stretches out her hand. With authority. With purpose. She stretches forth her hand with the right to do so and knowing what she's doing and why. The, um, the excellent wife, the woman of Chayil. It's the same language as used of a mighty man of valor. This is just a mighty woman of valor. And uh, her battlefield is, uh, is uh, described here in these terms. So, um, anyway, there's, and this is all alphabetized too, by the way. So if you're a little Hebrew girl and you know your alphabet from Aleph to Tau, then you can think your way through because verse 10 starts with Aleph, verse 11 with Beth, verse 12, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Wow, Zion, Chayfield. And just alphabetize this verse like it's an acrostic psalm, like Psalm 119. And so you work your way through. And uh, she, ever, the stretching out here, she um, stretches out her hands to the distaff, to the distaff. Her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. So I think we have three expressions there in those two verses. <clears throat> She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. We have the same elements we've been seeing again and again. The authority, the purpose, the, uh, the blessings to, uh, to accomplish these things. <coughs> Finally, then, Jesus. Repeatedly. I'm just giving you three chapters from Matthew. 
Jesus is constantly stretching his hand out. And recognize that it's more than just theater. It's more than, uh, you know, it's not just a, a stage presence. It's not a, it's not a component of dramatic oratory for a, for a public speaker to stand and to raise his hand and to get everyone's attention. And, and as, a, as a, no, there is actually purpose and function and, and doctrine to be contained in these idioms as they're used. So Matthew 8, 3, here's a leper came and bowed down before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And so most of Jesus' cleansing uh, miracles were done on this basis, stretching out his hand and touching him. And uh, like I say, I don't think I'll ever read these idioms again quite the same way. And I certainly won't just brush through them and, and act like they're not there. You know, I think my attitude has always been, okay, get to verse 3, all right, Jesus touched him and said, I'm willing to be cleansed. Well, before he touched him, what did he have to do? He had to stretch forth his hand and then touch him. And I don't think that's an insignificant detail. I don't think it's extraneous. God, if all scriptures, God, read the prophet, well, that includes this expression. And so immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In chapter 12, Now he's going to order the other man to stretch out his hand. Here's the man with the withered hand. And um, kept coming into these Sabbath controversies. And uh, here's another one. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And wouldn't you know it, the very next Sabbath, here comes another conflict. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? He says, Come on, be honest. You're going to wait till morning to get him out of there? He fell into the thing on a, on a Sabbath. What are you going to do? Of course you're going to get him out of there. Everybody would be. You've probably done it yourself. You know, and they can't deny it. They can't uh, dispute it. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And I didn't list the parallels here, but if you go to Luke, I think it's in Luke, in one of them, it's, it, Jesus looks around with anger. He's looking around like, you know, like he's daring them to say something else. And then uh, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, why does he command that? Can he just do the miracle? And, and the, 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 I think there's a purpose for this man now to stretch forth his hand. This man now is portraying this. So he stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. <laughs> and that's the last straw. Ooh, that was defiance. The Pharisees are now livid beside, beside themselves. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's, that's just too much. I mean, he, was, he, he just did that to spite us. He did that in our face. Okay? And, and to them, all right, it's over now. We're, we got to find some way to kill him. That's, uh, that's the great hinge chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. is Matthew 12. Down to verse 49, same chapter. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother, my brothers. And, uh, it, you know, again, that's, there's authority in this. 
There's a point being made. Matthew 14, 31. And uh, Peter walking on water. And, uh, you know, they're all in the boat. They see him walking. They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. But Jesus says, I am. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. I don't know why the 11 others just stayed there and didn't go and didn't follow him. Then the problem, you take your eyes off the Lord, seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? All right, so there's the issue there. And that's the whole sermon on its own. Each of these could become a message on their own. But uh, there it is. So I think this reaching forward imperative has, um, has a significance greater than we would typically think about. I think it comes... Within the, within the heritage of these previous usages, these previous stories and illustrations and doctrines and principles, as far as reaching for the tree of life, as far as reaching for the sacrificial knife, as far as reaching for redemption, as far as reaching for healing, all these other things. And so when Paul says, I'm forgetting what lies behind and I'm reaching for what lies ahead, I think that there is a significant statement there that maybe is deeper than, than we've considered up until now. All right? So we can chew on that till Wednesday. We'll come back and pick it up here. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this study, and for giving the voice to uh, to make the entirety of this hour. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness, Father, in, in uh, all that you provide. We'll give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.